this biomedical industrial complex is going to make huge profits off yet another vaccine and the associated drugs. So it's a business model. It's a business model for media. That's why the fear porn, it drives clicks. At the CPAC conference in Dallas, Texas, I sat down with mRNA vaccine pioneer, Dr. Robert Malone, this time to discuss the strange events and policies surrounding the monkeypox outbreak. In many of our leaders, to my eye, they've kind of given up on the idea of the American nation state and the logic of independent nation states in general. And they bought into the logic that there should be a one world government largely unelected. Dr. Malone popularized the concept of mass formation earlier this year, but this is just one of the many aspects of human psychology playing into our current societal moment. We tackle the concept of groupthink, the role it has played, and how to avoid it in the future. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kelly. Before we get started, I have a message from the sponsor of this podcast. Inflation is at its highest in 40 years, and it's eating away at your savings. Interest rates are also on the rise. American Hartford Gold can show you how to protect the value of your savings and retirement accounts by diversifying your portfolio with physical gold and silver. All it takes to get started is a short phone call, and they'll have physical gold and silver delivered right to your door or inside your IRA or 401k, and they make it easy. They are the highest-rated firm in the country with an A-plus rating from the Better Business Bureau and thousands of satisfied clients. If you call them right now, they will give you up to $1,500 of free silver on your first qualifying order. So don't wait. Call them now. Call 855-862-3377. That's 855-862-3377. Or text AMERICAN to 65532. Again, that's 855-862-3377, or text AMERICAN to 65532. Dr. Robert Malone, such a pleasure to have you back on American Thought Leaders. <laughs> My pleasure, Jan, to be back here again. I think there's so much to talk about. Now, this is one thing I was, I'm was i very curious about. We keep hearing about monkeypox, and recently, actually, it seems like the U.S. government has declared there to be uh, an emergency around monkeypox. And is wh what do you make of this? So this is a complex topic that you're asking. How do you interpret the behavior of these organizations, the World Health Organization and the U.S. government, HHS, as it relates to a disease that has, you know, certainly well fewer than 50,000 cases globally and almost no mortality. And to the extent there is mortality, most of it seems to be associated with people that had significant clinical AIDS. Auto, um, acquired immunodeficiency syndrome. So this is not a lethal disease. It is a disease that is associated with significant pain in this new cohort. Normally, we don't see monkeypox historically in men who have sex with men. That has not been the usual clinical presentation. And in men who have sex with men, this current uh, outbreak and it's almost exclusively in that cohort or people that have close contact with them. Um, there is significant clinical pain in the symptoms associated with the, that mode of transmission. And so that's what's putting people in the hospital is largely pain control. Now, I'm told by my clinical colleagues there are medicines now that are really producing a remarkable response, clinical response, in terms of shutting down the virus replication. So this, we're in the same kind of situation that we were with COVID, where there is a push for vaccination. Um, the vaccine industry is salivating over the opportunity, particularly emergent biosystems in Bavarian Nordic. But the, and, and the government has already deployed virtually all of the vaccine that it had, which was developed for smallpox. And there's a bunch of things underlying this monkeypox outbreak that are, I think, the gentlest term I could say is suspicious. Uh, it goes all the way back. I covered the very first presentations that came out in the media about this. The first one that I saw was by Jake Tapper from CNN. It's important to remember Jake is a member of the Council for Foreign Relations, as many of the CNN broadcasters are, which is an odd thing in and of itself. 
why they are so linked to the what we would call the administrative state, that particular broadcaster. And in Jake's segment uh, that he put out, there was clear usage of images of smallpox presented to the public as monkeypox. So a lethal virus, images of a lethal virus, black and white, grainy old photographs that I was well familiar with because I used to work on smallpox vaccines for the Department of Defense back in the day when I was working at Dineport Vaccine Company. So I know this space really well. And there was this initial push of information uh, regarding monkeypox and the monkeypox threat. I use the term in characterizing it, this psychological term, which is fear porn. The media was aggressively pushing storylines about monkeypox that heightened people's fear. And now I'm hearing, you know, old ladies, average people, frightened to death that they're going to ha get monkeypox. These are people that are not in that high-risk cohort. People being alarmed because their children might be getting monkeypox because there's, I think, three cases of children that have been reported that have had monkeypox and they've all acquired it because of close contact with that high-risk cohort. Um, so there's Another example is the Gavi Alliance, which is a Bill and Melinda Gates funded organization that focuses on AIDS, put out a website almost immediately after the outbreak was detected in which they asserted a 10% mortality rate. And in the same webpage, they acknowledged the WHO said it had a maximum of 3% mortality. There is all kinds of evidence that there was concerted effort on the part of, of corporate media to instill fear around this topic area. And then there was this paradoxical planning session that they had almost a year to the date, another war game like Event 201 held in Germany, uh, in which they planned for a monkeypox, highly lethal monkeypox outbreak that would eventually result in a billion deaths of a uh, more lethal, more infectious monkeypox. Um, it's all very odd. There's also this oddity that within less than a week of the onset of the outbreak, which is associated with this largest gay rave party in the world, people fly in to one of the islands outside of Spain um, to attend this party, which is where the initial outbreak uh, emanated from, and then it was brought back to mostly Northern Europe and the United States by the people that participated, also into the Iberian Peninsula. And um, within a week of the onset of that discrete event, Emergent uh, Biosystems concluded a major contract for purchase of a leading antiviral agent. So there's a whole bunch of things around this that are very odd. Then we had this recent uh, situation with uh, Tedros, the Director General of, of the World Health Organization. Um, there was two separate advisory committee meetings um, held about whether or not this should be considered a, a global public health emergency. and. Uh, the first one voted against it. Only three members voted that it should be. Then apparently there was some modification in the committee structure. More people were brought in that had detailed knowledge of this high-risk cohort and treatment of monkeypox in this high-risk cohort. And still they got a vote of six in favor and nine against, which Mr. Tedros declared was a tie. Um, uh, even though clearly it wasn't, and that he needed to break the tie. And he stepped in and made this determination that this was going to be a global health uh, emergency. I have decided that the global monkeypox outbreak represents a public health emergency of international concern. Uh, of course, as I said earlier, since there the role of the committee is to advise, um, the, I then had to act as a tiebreaker. I consider this as a clause and no consensus by them. So um, the, my colleagues and myself discussed about this issue and um, uh, we uh, believed that uh, you know, it's time to uh, declare FIC or public health emergency of international concern.
which then evokes the international health regulation clauses that we're all familiar with because of the attempts to modify them in the beginning of the year that provoked so much outrage about um, uh, loss of sovereignty in nations, particularly in African nations. So there's a whole cluster of, oh, that seems a little fishy that's gone all the way through this since the outbreak. And, and it's the predecessor to that is that another one of these uh, planning war game sessions was held that laid out how this response is going to roll out, etc. So the whole thing seems pretty suspicious and clearly influenced by a very vocal advocacy uh, coalition, which uh, reflects the interests of this particular high-risk group. And that's come out in social media and other venues where it's been discussed widely um, that Mr. Tedros uh, should have had more representatives from this committee making the international health determination. And now, for instance, I had somebody from Puerto Rico, just to close, come to me yesterday who is, was quite frightened, not in a high-risk group, a young woman with children, and she told me that it's now being actively discussed in Puerto Rico that the entire island has to be vaccinated against monkeypox. When we have less than 50,000 cases globally, and it could be easily, it's not lethal, it's not aerosol transmitted, masks are not going to do any good at all. Um, it's, it's by contact, close, intimate contact that it's spread. And uh, the vaccine, by the way, is associated with myocarditis. It's not specifically designed for monkeypox. And there's the way that under normal situations, normal public health procedures, this would be handled is through contact tracing and uh, quarantining or abstinence. A period of about 30 days of abstinence from the infected individuals of contact with others or intimate contact would should be sufficient to block the further transmission of this agent. So it's readily contained. It's a small number of individuals. It's not lethal. It's not aerosol transmitted. And it is, it is extremely painful in that subset of the population at high risk because of the practices associated with this route of transmission and where an individual becomes infected in the perineal region, which is very sensitive, highly innervated, and so no surprise there's a lot of pain there, but it doesn't kill these people. So you think there's some sort of, um, you're saying there's a lot of suspicious things going on, right? Okay, I, I, I see that. A lot of moving that. parts. Right, no, and, but like, this is kind of the ultimate question, right? Why would there be interest, and this is kind of what you're talking about suggests, why would there be interest in making this seem a lot bigger than it is? So uh, that is a super question, and, and it's, it's really uncomfortable to talk about the politicization of public health, the weaponization of public health for political objectives. And yet we even have the New York Times on President's Day with their amazing reveal article that the CDC has been weaponized for political purposes. It's no longer an objective truth teller. It's part of the, the White House political machine. Um, clearly, public health has been politicized. I think we can all agree on that. Um, I think that we can agree that the uh, declaration of a public health emergency enables the executive branch and the administrative state to bypass certain laws, norms in terms of bioethics, and uh, many would argue key aspects of the Bill of Rights, including uh, obtaining a authorization or justification for various censorship and information control practices. And with this declaration that this is another public health emergency akin to the corona crisis, which is no longer clearly a public health emergency, our hospitals are not filled up, etc. But by maintaining this, the bureaucracy, ergo the administrative state, and the executive branch, which I argue is largely captured by the administrative state and operates in support of it, um, is able to maintain this 
poli set of policies that allow for extraordinary powers. And that seems, you know, Bobby Kennedy warned us about this, RFK Jr. warned us about this on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial during the um, Stop the Mandates action that we had in D.C. He said once they put these policies in place, they will never give that power back unless they're forced to do so. And there was a lot of criticism about him saying that, but, but the proof of the pudding is in the eating. And it seems that there is strong interest in the HHS bureaucracy and the executive branch to maintain this state of emergency for some reason. And we can go down that rabbit hole, but it becomes all speculation because neither you nor I are being brought in uh, to the Oval Office to have chats with Mr. Biden or whoever's running the operation at this point in time. Well. There is another explanation too. I mean, I that we've become overly careful. That we've become a safe. You know, for, people call it the safetyest society. So, you know, the approach is whatever is happening, we take kind of the extreme safety-oriented approach to any situation, right? So I I. I concur with that and the other thread in this, I mean, this is multifactorial, I think. There's a lot of interest circulating around this, and not the least of which is this uh, biomedical industrial complex is going to make huge profits off yet another vaccine and the associated drugs. So it's a business model. It's a business model for media. That's why the fear porn. It drives uh, ratings, it drives clicks. All of the metrics for CNN and the others that are typically pushing this kind of fear into the population, it's good business for them, okay? But feeding off of your point about this safety culture that we've created, I've argued in the past on, on our Substack that we now have the consequences of raising multiple generations in an environment in which they are protected, highly protected. We've seen this all over in children and parenting and school behaviors, etc. This this logic of protecting the parent, uh, children all the time. This the terms helicopter parents and things like that are used to describe it. But what what that all comes down to is creating successive cohorts that believe that they have the right to be protected from any kind of a threat, any kind of a controversy, and that runs all the way through. They deserve to be protected from any cognitive dissonance. In other words, they should be protected from any thoughts that cause them emotional or psychological discomfort. And hence, I think from that stems the wide consensus among many people that censorship is okay that they should have the right to be protected from having to encounter information that makes them uncomfortable. And I believe strongly that this is one of the major problems we're facing right now is, as you say, a culture that has come to the point where it believes many of the members believe that they have the right to be protected from virtually any threat because it's how they've been raised. It's a very troubling thought, isn't it? We've certainly talked on the show about, you know, ways to try to solve the current sort of general, like I'll call it the general conundrum, right? All these, like you were saying, this multifactorial, very difficult situation that, that, that we find ourselves in. But when you talk about something like this, which is very deep, I mean, it's, it's sort of, it's at almost at the identity level deep, yes. right? I, th I think that one of the things that's come out of all of this is that there are some profound, deep psychological issues that are going on within our culture right now. And uh, I mentioned one historically on Rogan that kind of lit people up, which is the mass formation psychosis, Matthias Desmet's insights that extend on uh, just prior work that goes all the way back to Plato's cave um, that describe this uh, property of the of the masses of groups and group formation 
Um, but then we also have various aberrant behaviors and kind of dysfunctionality down at the individual level and in small groups also. I think it's part of what's stopping and inhibiting innovation in much of our industry. I think it's it's responsible for some of the underlying cultural problems that exist in Wall Street. We have some real cultural things, not the least of which is commitment to core values. And I think that we we hesitate, we draw back, we don't want to deal with these things. They're uncomfortable, they're unpleasant to say, hey, we've, we as a body politic have got some real issues going on here and we don't want to talk about them because it's uncomfortable, but we're going to have to deal with it, otherwise somebody else is going to force us to deal with it in a very unpleasant way. Okay, what, and so explain that. Who's, who's doing the forcing and, 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 and what's the unpleasant well, way? Well, clear, clearly we're in an a, a environment in which the way it's been explained to me, I've, I've been in this journey of trying to understand what are the underlying drivers that has led us to this uh, highly dysfunctional public health response that we call the corona crisis. Um, and in doing so, I've been talking to people in the financial industry, politics, etc. One of the major trends, apparently, I'm taught, is that we are living through the decline of Pax Americana. The American experiment and Pax Americana, we're drawing back from that. And that has a whole cascade of effects. That means we're no longer going to be protecting sea lanes in the same way, which means that there's going to be a major impact on shipping and shipping costs. So the globalism around the merging of economies is now going to take a hit. Um, we're drawing back intentionally or under pressure from the CCP, Russia, and that new axis with Iran and others with a new capital structure, a new global currency structure that's being negotiated right now. We're drawing back from the dollar being the global currency for trade and that has implications. A lot of those dollars are having to come back on shore now. We've overprinted money and, and used that to support this global currency position that we've taken, in part, again, to protect our allies in Europe and elsewhere. And now that's all in transition, in part triggered by the decisions made in Ukraine and the responses associated with that. And we now face a situation here in the United States where we, we've become very accustomed to being the big dog. And that's changing. China is the big dog and there's this new Chinese-Russian alliance forming. And a lot of the, our traditional opponents, like Iran, are now being drawn into that sphere of influence. And the, when I refer to others are gonna force us to deal with it if we don't deal it with ourselves, what I'm talking about is we live in a hostile multilateral world where information warfare, economic warfare, unrestricted warfare in all of these new 21st century dimensions is ongoing. And if we don't come to terms with the fact that if we're going to survive as an independent nation state, we need to recognize that we have a landscape of external threats and we don't have the luxury to be so inwardly focused all the time on these divisive social issues. We really do have to recognize that we have an external threat landscape. And it appears in many of our leaders, to my eye, that they've kind of given up on the idea of the American nation state, of, of an independent entity, and, and the logic of independent nation states in general. And they bought into the logic that there should be a one world government, a global government, largely unelected, um, run through the United Nations, an extension of the United Nations. The World Health Organization is part of that. The World Economic Forum is a treaty holder with the United Nations. The logic that, there, that this, this thing that we call the nation state is obsolete. It's dysfunctional and therefore the, the things like the U.S. Constitution, I mean we hear this now, this logic, the U.S. Constitution written by these old white guys who were slaveholders is no longer relevant. It's, it's throwing out all of the lessons of the American Enlightenment, 
all of that insight in, in this belief in, in a centralized global government and, frankly, the logic of a command economy. What's really being driven is the logic that a small group of individuals, unelected, very high economic status, experts are able, if they only have, this is driving a lot of the data hunger, if they only had enough data that could be tied to each one of us, then they could run artificial intelligence and machine learning algorithms and derive an optimum that would maximize global happiness, right? You will own nothing and be happy. That this is all based on the logic of utilitarianism. If we only had enough data, and then we could take all our fantastic new computing power and devise an algorithm that would define the maximal happiness for the maximal number of individuals, and then we can use command economy to say that these individuals will produce so many Macintosh apples and this type of potato and uh, this much energy from these different sources, as if centralized uh, planning and command economy has ever worked in the history of mankind. I mean, how many times do we have to run this experiment? But they now believe that the nation state is obsolete and it should be everything should be run through some centralized structure that's that is the big kahuna underneath all of this as far as i'm concerned and then there's this also this uh you know kind of truism right power corrupts absolute power corrupts absolutely and it's like we we forget that i guess every every group that tries for this sort of imagines that they're going to do it differently. Yeah, so this, this gets what you're touching on is this uh, complex matrix of uh, whether they're just incompetent uh, or they nefarious. Uh, is, is there true evil behind this? Many people now are speaking of evil, this kind of philosophical religious concept that uh, we used to consider to be um, outside of the acceptable Overton window. We weren't supposed to talk about religion and these kinds of things like Judeo-Christian ethics and evil and that kind of stuff was supposed to be somewhere else, right? Separation of church and state, I guess, or something. But now it's become, for so many of us, it's become hard to discuss what we're observing without evoking um, the concept that there truly is evil out there, um, but there is also incompetence and, and uh, arrogance uh, and elitism and all of these, I, I, the best word I have is sins, uh, that are common to man that have existed through the centuries in virtually every major civilization. Why should we consider that these things wouldn't be happening? Of course they are. And, and so I, I agree that we have it's really difficult, I think, for any of us to wrestle with this paradox of how much of this is kind of nefarious intent and how much of it is just kind of arrogant goofiness, uh, incompetence um, of people who think that somehow because they're really wealthy, it makes them smarter than the rest of us. And this, this evokes for me having seen this run through the investment community for years. I mean, what I've seen through my whole career with the birth and growth of biotech is this cycle where you have people make a bunch of money in an industry, largely through circumstance. I mean, a lot of it is kind of the roll of the dice. You get lucky with this product. Then they get a bunch of money. They think they're all geniuses. They set up an investment firm and then they go and try to start NUCOs and they think that they're so brilliant that every one of those is going to succeed and they don't you know, mitigate their risk. They don't really think things through. I think that this same kind of belief system happens in these really, really wealthy individuals and we know some poster children of the, you know, that we could name here. Uh, and then they all get together in these various forum and the World Economic Forum is just one. Uh, Bilderbergs is another, and there's many, many others now that have been seated where these individuals come together and form groups and strategize for what they think has to be done for the world. 
And what I think what we're seeing is that a lot of times these folks will come up with a plan. Like in the 90s, Agenda 2030 was developed for the United Nations. And so in the 90s, they, there was a group that identified, a small group within the United Nations, that identified what they thought should be the objectives for the next century, for 2030. Um, and that got solidified as a plan. A n- large number of nations bought off on that plan, signed off on it. And now we're stuck. They're just mindlessly grinding towards that. And this has to do with the CO2 emission logic. It has to do with farmland restrictions and placing farmland into ecological reserves. All these things that are built into that plan that was built in the 90s based on the way people thought things were going to be in 2030 we're now forced because of the bureaucracy once they get a hold of these things they just keep pounding away at them and that seems to be another part of this this process that's going on it's very complex it's very multifactorial like we're discussing and in all of these moving parts kind of interact all around the idea that a small group of individuals should be empowered to run the world um, through a the logic of utilitarianism and uh, command economy management, which clearly failed repeatedly. So, Robert, I think right now is kind of the perfect moment for us to talk about something that we've been talking quite a bit off-camera about, which is this concept of groupthink. Um, and this is something distinct from this idea of mass formation that Matthias Desmet and then you, you know, have, po- have popularized or at least brought into the public consciousness uh, more recently. Um, York, can you bring over the computer? Because we're going to need a little bit of support here. Yeah, so Victims of Groupthink was a kind of a core pol- political science textbook of the 1970s and early 1980s. And uh, it was written by a psychologist, so it's coming from the same discipline as Matthias Desmet, who's also a psychologist, in addition to a biostatistician. But the focus of Irving Janus's work was more on group theory. So that was his core focus, was the behavior of groups and how groups work in a positive way and also in a negative way. And as he was proceeding with his academic work, he realized that he was seeing examples of, of group behavior gone awry, gone bad, particularly in the context of various federal decisions that occurred during the 50s, 60s, and then up to the present. And uh, it was kind of a gradual awakening for him, much like Matthias describes with his work that's built off of uh, Gustave Le Bon and so many other predecessors all the way back to Plato. But in Matthias's case, he's focusing on the group as a very large mass, the formation of masses, the psychology of masses, the psychology of in totalitarianism, in authoritarian behavior. In the case of Irving Janus, he was focused on small group theory and the behaviors and ways that small groups under pressure making key decisions can go awry. And he came up with some really clear guidance as well as through a series of case studies focused on U.S. government successes and major policy failures that describes how these closed, insular, self-reinforcing groups tend to behave and how they can go wrong. So he leads in his analysis with a quote from Friedrich Nietzsche, uh, which is, madness is the exception in individuals, but the rule in groups. And that kind of informs his whole analysis Um, and his personal theory, which is uh, captured in this small textbook having to do with um, this process of of groups forming uh, these odd behaviors and and, um, dysfunctional management styles. The reason we've been talking about this is, is of course, we found that our leaders, let's say, in different agencies, not just in the U.S., certainly in Canada and around the world, have been making some pretty 
ill-advised decisions on the face of it, right? And it's almost, you know, there, there's different theories as to why. Some of those theories are regulatory capture, others are, but there's also kind of simpler explanation or at least partial explanations which, which fit into exactly what, we're, what you're describing right now. Yes, yeah, so Irving Jadis describes this term that's often thrown about um, and used casually, groupthink. And uh, he has some very specific definitions for what it constitutes coming from his core competence as a psychologist. So he, he, he defines the term groupthink as a quick and easy way to refer to a mode of thinking that people engage in when they're deeply involved in a cohesive in-group. Okay, so this is a key characteristic. This is a behavior of cohesive in-groups. We could call them cliques such as potentially we could say Mike Pence's special COVID task force was clearly an in-group of people that were very cohesive, they knew each other, they were longtime friends and associates, and they have a kind of a sense of being elite. So he calls this cohesive in-groups in which the members' strivings for unanimity override their motivation to realistically appraise alternative courses of action. In other words, the core to this idea of groupthink is that you have a cohesive group, small group, that wants to um, come together, avoid controversy, and believes that they are elite. They are the best of the best. And these groups that form often within our government, but also in corporations, tend to have certain types of errors in their decision-making and analysis. And it's fascinating to look back at this, at this uh, core textbook that really created the term groupthink, brought it into the public consciousness, and reevaluate, have we actually seen the characteristics of groupthink in the people that have been leading our response to the COVID crisis and that of New Zealand, Australia, Canada, and of course the World Health Organization. So we were talking about this and um, this caused me to go back to the book and I haven't read this for uh, probably 30 years. Uh, but I went back to it knowing this was the core text and started picking through to see are there, is there any evidence that we actually saw groupthink among all these other things? I'm not saying that the WEF didn't play a role and the WHO and the UN and uh, Pfizer and all of these other factors. You know, it's important to, look, we both recognize that many things can be happening at the same time. So just getting into it, um, one of the things that I found most striking right off the top in Dr. Janus's work is he describes hard-headed actions by soft-headed groups. He refers to soft-headed thinking as the product of these kinds of cohesive groups where everybody wants to agree with each other. That's more important to agree with each other than it is to be right. Okay, that's one of the characteristics. And this is not just in, in government groups, it's behaviors of people in general. So he says, at first I was surprised by the extent to which groups in the fiascos I had examined, he did case studies, adhered to group norms and pressures towards uniformity. Just as in groups of ordinary citizens, a dominant characteristic appears to be remaining loyal to the group. It's important to be loyal by sticking with the decisions to which the group has committed itself, even when the policy is working badly, it has unintended consequences that disturb the consciousness of the members. So it's bothering people on a deep level about ethics and things like that, but it's more important that they stay cohesive. In a sense, the members consider loyalty to the group the highest form of morality. Whoa, that's kind of a big statement. That loyalty requires each member to avoid raising controversial issues, questioning weak arguments, or calling a halt to soft-headed thinking. How, what is a better description of what we've observed? You know, uh, one thing I want to comment here is that what strikes me about this, right, uh, is that on the one hand, um, I'm sure he describes the circumstances under which it, this forms in some more detail beyond what you just described, 
but I'm sure he can also describe how you would structure, how you would set up circumstances to prevent this exact thing from happening. Yes, right? so well put. And and you know, all of this social theory and psychology doesn't do us any good if it's just a bunch of academics talking to each other. Um, what are the actual action items that could be used to avoid this? And I want to highlight something else that he said. Paradoxically, soft-headed groups are likely to be extremely hard-hearted towards outgroups and enemies in dealing with the rival nation, etc. An affable group of government officials is unlikely to pursue the difficulty, the difficult and controversial issues that arise when alternatives to harsh solutions come up in discussion. So one of the things that Janus prescribes as he's gone through these case studies of things like the Marshall Plan to rebuild Europe as an example of a positive uh, small cohesive group that successfully came up with good public policy and the Bay of Pigs as an example of a huge fiasco because of this groupthink process and there are many others that he examines. One of the key points that he emphasizes all the way through is to avoid this you have to bring in outsiders or you have to have some mechanism to cause the group to continually reevaluate the decisions it's made and test reality, make sure that that's, that's really what's going on and that we've taken everything into account. And that's clearly something that didn't happen. And we know that with the COVID crisis because of Debbie, Debbie Burks's book and together paired with Scott Atlas's book. So with Scott Atlas, we have this story of the outsider academic that's brought in to this environment of this small, cohesive group that's worked with each other for years and years, largely on AIDS. And he describes his frustration in coming in at the direction of the president, um, particularly Jared Kushner apparently brought him in and everything he says is rejected. He's treated as an outsider. He's attacked just as Janus proposes is the normal behavior of these small cohesive groups is they want to reject any outside criticism, any outsiders. And we have Debbie Burks's statements in her book in which she talks from the other side about how hostile Scott Atlas was and how important it was to avoid him and get him pushed out and to avoid any meetings with him with, with Donald Trump or the meetings with the uh, Great Barrington Declaration signatories that came in to speak to, Dr. to Mr. Trump. So all of this fits in this pattern. And what, what we have learned here is that Mr. Kushner did exactly what Dr. Janus had prescribed, which is to bring in an outsider heretic that would challenge the basic assumptions of the group and make sure that they were doing the right thing and making the right decisions. And yet, to put the underscore on this, we had the Congressional Select Committee on the Corona Crisis, run by the Democrats largely, issue their first report in which they specifically criticized Scott Atlas and Jared Kushner for coming in and saying things that were unpopular with the core group, when that's exactly what should have been done. And if it had been listened to, think of where we would have been now instead of where we are right now. If, if there had been a willingness on the part of the leadership of that core group to accept outside criticism or to actively criticize themselves as Dr. Janus recommends, then we would have been in a completely different position as opposed to these classic behaviors of rejecting any outside information or anything that's contrary to their narrative, which, you know, again, they were driven as these small select elite groups often are to form consensus. They felt that consensus was more important than the ethics of what they were doing. And this is not just reserved to them. It happens again and again and again in these small groups. And what's really fascinating in Deborah Burks, Dr. Burks's book, is that you know she she takes a priori it appears to me that she takes a priori the idea that that their policy was the correct policy. Like it, this comes through as you read this book, right? That that she's not. She, there's no. 
real discussion about how this policy was come to and how it was debated and how it was actually decided upon. Because right? they were all seeking consensus. I mean, here, here, here it is. Um, the central theme of my analysis, again quoting from Dr. Janus, the more amiability and esprit de corps among the members of the policymaking in-group, think back to that group. Think how they behaved, okay? They clearly had a lot of esprit de corps. They clearly knew each other, felt warm towards each other. The greater the amiability and esprit de corps among the members of a policymaking in-group, the greater is the danger that independent critical thinking will be replaced by groupthink, which is likely to result in irrational and dehumanizing actions directed against outgroups. Exactly what we saw with the propaganda, the attacks, the manipulation of the media, the defamation, the gaslighting, all of this, the attacks on the Great Barrington Declaration authors. I mean, that, that was offered in good faith. And what did they do? They didn't just argue with them. They didn't just disagree with them. They tried to destroy them. Just exactly what Janus proposes is the typical psychology of these in-groups that form and uh, have resulted in some of the greatest public policy failures in the United States history, and I suspect the corona crisis is, is going to be seen as one of those in the future. It makes me wonder, why is, this, why is the Marshall Plan cited as a success story? What was it about the Marshall Plan that the way they structured the decision-making, for lack of a better term, how they helped made the experts work with each other or advocated for them to work with each other that was different, that avoided this particular issue, according to Janus. So what Janus did this series of evaluations of various crises as well as successes. The ones that he went over was the Bay of Pigs, um, in and out of North Korea, um, Pearl Harbor, why the fort fortress slept, and the escalation of the Vietnam War were all clear, massive American policy failures. We could add the Afghanistan War as another example. And the counterpoint, the Cuban Missile Crisis and the Marshall Plan are considered two of the great high points in American foreign policy. So you mentioned the Marshall Plan, which many may not remember, was the plan that the American government created to re activate, re-enable, rebuild, war-destroyed Europe. Europe was just completely devastated. And there was great fear that just as happened after World War I, we'd again have the rise of a totalitarian or a fascist regime and gross dysfunction. So it was in the Americans' interest to try to rebuild Europe. Plus, we wanted to have a trading partner. So how to do it? And rather than having a small in-group come together and say, well, this is the plan, what they did brilliantly was they set up a, a whole group of separate groups that each came up with their own plan, did their own analysis, and then came together and built a consensus plan on the basis of that, that we now call the Marshall Plan, that resulted in a, you know rapid rebuilding, amazingly rapid rebuilding of Europe, at least the Europe that wasn't behind the Iron Curtain. So an enormous foreign policy success, an enormous economic success, and it was enabled by a president who realized that there was a problem with these small cohesive groups, and he had to find a strategy to break that process up so that you would avoid that kind of uh, wrong think or group think process that often emerges from these small bureaucratic cliques. That's fascinating because it means that we can actually develop some very clear structure. This is like, this is a very interesting opportunity to actually understand what happened and provide prescriptions based on a true, honest analysis of what really happened on how to avoid it right, in the future. I think it's really useful to, to frame this in a, in a nonpartisan fashion. We're all interested in gov government, whether you're left, right, center, up, or down. We all want good government. We want value for our money. 
And unfortunately, there's this tendency, those that don't remember history are bound to repeat it. And what we've had is a great case study in the failure to learn the lessons of American history and American foreign policy failures and apply it here. And I don't think this has to be a Democrat or a Republican issue. I think we can all agree that good government is something we all want and that we should put in place policies even if we still have the administrative state, even if the incoming administration is not able to break up the senior executive service that they may wish to do, even if we still have those structures in place, we need to be able to learn from this. Lessons learned, root cause analysis, and I think one of the core lessons has to be that we need to avoid this small, cohesive in-group based decision making that doesn't allow itself to be challenged. It's Janus talks about this as a pretzel problem. You have to have enough cohesion in the leadership group. I mean one one model is the executive just makes all the unilateral decisions, we make him king or dictator and that's that. We generally in America have a tendency to want to use groups and group decision making. We think that that gives more diversity of opinion. We think diversity is good here in the United States, generally speaking. I think we can generally agree on that. And uh, so we want diversity of opinion, but we can't have it if there's too much cohesion. If it's just a buddy network and what all they really want to do is reinforce and protect each other. And so Janus gives us a large number of, it's nine points nine clear, tangible recommendations that we can use and implement in our public policy for how these decision-making groups should operate. And I think that many of these things are actually put in place among the leaders that are trained by the U.S. military because they have to be able to respond to a changing tactical and strategic landscape. But I don't think it's been part of the training this kind of leadership training typically in the health and human service leadership and in many of our other agencies. And maybe that's the big lesson here is that we can learn from this and implement some policies so that we don't have this kind of in cohesive in-group that just is um, focusing on itself and protecting each other rather than realizing the policy failures that they're propagating. I keep thinking as you're describing this, you know, sort of ideological diversity is actually very important, right? Because these, because people who have come from different viewpoints, quite fundamentally, foundationally different viewpoints, will really have very, very different solutions, right? And those, all those solutions can be assessed on their merits. Absolutely. We have to have diversity of, of political spectrum, uh, diversity of gender, diversity of ethnic group representation. This is good. This is what makes us strong as Americans, is that we have this diversity. I'd like to again read from one of the closing quotes from Irving Janus, where he's talking about his two main conclusions from his analysis. Those are that along with other sources of error in decision-making, groupthink is most likely to occur within cohesive small groups of decision makers and that the most corrosive effects of groupthink can be counteracted by eliminating group insulation, overly directive leadership practices and other conditions that foster premature conclusions. We've, I mean, premature conclusions. We're all suffering. We are victims of groupthink, all of us, because of those premature conclusions. He says, those who take these conclusions seriously will probably find that the little knowledge they have about groupthink increases their understanding of the causes of erroneous group decisions. We have a prescription here. It's got nine different points. It's a clear, cohesive analysis. It predicted the behaviors that we've seen. It predicted the dysfunctionalism, and we could have avoided it if we'd had a little less hubris and a little more thinking and willingness to, to tolerate dissent. I mean, for me in my own laboratory, I, I crave dissent. In order to have good, clear thinking, scientific thinking, you must be challenged. 
and yet they've done everything they can to to railroad and shut down any communication that would challenge their consensus. This is the essence of the I am science statement that is so profound. So I'm dying to know, tell me about some of these nine provisions. So Janus has nine conclusions about how to prevent groupthink. And really, as you listen to them, they're just practical. This is nothing fancy here. Um, his first one, the leader of a policy-forming group should assign the role of critical evaluator to each member. In other words, each one has to be critically evaluating what's going on all the time, encouraging the group to give high priority to airing objections and doubts. This practice needs to be reinforced by the leader's acceptance of criticism of his own judgments in order to discourage the members from soft-pedaling their disagreements. The second key point, the leaders in an organization's hierarchy when assigning a policy planning mission to a group should be impartial. Instead of stating uh, preconceptions and expectations at the outset, they need to make it clear that the group has to be impartial and consider everything. This practice requires each leader to uh, clearly avoid in brief uh, any inference that the leader's opinions need to be taken into account. This is to avoid sycophant behavior. Okay, another key point. The organization should routinely follow the administrative practice of setting up several independent policy planning and evaluation groups. This is the Marshall Plan strategy that is one of the great American successes. Worldwide, we can all agree wouldn't we like it if the American government behaved like they did at the close of World War II and the rebuilding of Europe? Several independent policy planning and evaluation groups to work on the same policy question, each carrying out its deliberation under a different leader. That's crucial. Fourth point, throughout the period when the feasibility and effectiveness of policy alternatives are being surveyed, Okay, when we're looking at all the landscape of options, the policy-making groups from time to time should divide into two or more subgroups. Again, the idea that we have to divide the group so that we don't have this drive toward consensus and we can allow independent opinions to arise. So, Robert, this is absolutely fascinating. This brings up the final issue I wanted to discuss with you today, which is, you know, how much information, including his historical but contemporary, whatever, is just simply being censored in various ways. You know, we encountered it ourselves at the Epoch Times with Twitter basically labeling our content across the board on the website as sort of dangerous for about 40, 40 hours time. It was only after a big kind of outcry from, from audiences and congressional members that that changed. But this is just a kind of ubiquitous problem. There's people like someone sitting here that have been kicked off certain social media. Um, and, and recently I heard that even Eventbrite is preventing um, certain events from actually using its system, its registration system. Yeah, that was one of the recent things that I found kind of shocking was this recent Hillsdale uh, conference on crony capitalism and the COVID crisis. So a very benign topic. Uh, headed up by a sitting U.S. Senator, Ron Johnson. Um, and uh, they have been using Eventbrite for years and years and years to book tickets for their various in-house conferences, including at their D.C. site. And so they once again went to set up their Eventbrite account for tickets for this particular event on crony capitalism and the COVID crisis. And they've done many prior crony crony capitalism series in, you know, war and other things. And uh, they went and, and activated the account so that they could obtain tickets through their standard method with Eventbrite. And Eventbrite notified them that they had violated their policy and that Eventbrite would not allow them to use their technology to sell tickets. So what happened was that they went direct to their mailing list and it was a completely packed house and not a problem. But this is really insidious, this uh, willingness to deplatform, delist, deactivate, uh, censor, 
this censorship seems to have started with Alex Jones and the Sandy Hook episode, and it's gradually nibbled away at more and more and more different topic areas, more and more and more different activities. And we have the physicians, we have bona fide news organizations now, which is shocking, and we have the Department of Homeland Security together with the Trusted News Initiative rolling out this language that they use to justify the censorship, which is, you know, inconsistent with our policies so no one could ever question because their policies are so vague that you don't know what your transgression has been. Um, or it's mis, dis, malinformation. And as I understand it, in your case, it was a whole new category. What was it? Dangerous information? Is that your sin? I don't remember exactly right now, but they said it was like a spammy or dangerous site. And, you know, the, the, we didn't have communication with them. It just simply had happened. Yeah. People noticed it. And then it disappeared. Well, thankfully, thankfully. Well, yeah. you're fortunate that it disappeared. For most of us, they just deploy it and they don't, they don't give any... Uh, opportunity to appeal or anything else. It's just there and that's that's the way it is. The Berenstein uh, lawsuit against Twitter actually had a negative aspect in that now Twitter is alerted that they should never disclose Twitter and all the me all the media giants and, and uh, the uh, social media platforms. They should never disclose the actual sin because then they could be sued for that. And so what they always use is this nebulous language and these euphemisms like mis, dis, or malinformation. Usually they call it misinformation, which is misinformation is defined by the Trusted News Initiative, which is the source of all this, as information which is different from that being propagated by the World Health Organization in the context of public health or your local health authority. So by definition, if I say something that's different from what CDC or contradicts CDC or the NIH or the FDA, if I interpret their data differently, then I am a, defined as a purveyor of misinformation, which is sold to the public as a horrible thing. I've heard many physicians and others say, well, the Washington Post says Dr. Malone is a purveyor of misinformation. Therefore, I don't even want to listen to that podcast. I don't want to even read that letter that he's written. I don't even want to look at that data analysis because I think it gives people an excuse. But, but it, is, it is insidious. There's also this element, I think you said that it's uh, it's WHO guidance that's the sort of the gold standard for the Trusted News Initiative. But there's there's many times when actually the WHO position and the CDC or the FDA position weren't the same, right? Or, or the data change and they change their position. There's never any reconciliation. It's, it's real, this is the problem with a lot of these kinds of policies and we've all seen it in our workplace. As soon as there's some HR policy that's put in place, some policy that allows one group to gain leverage over another, it'll be weaponized. It's just the nature of human beings interacting. But it seems uh, I have never seen any situation where the major corporate media is accused of misinformation, even though they have propagated many examples of misinformation or disinformation. It's clearly demonstrable. Um, we have the, the famous little video clips of Tony Fauci making these various statements over time that evolve about vaccine effectiveness. We have Joe Biden making the clear and unambiguous statement, take the vaccine and you won't get infected. Well, he's lived through that. I don't think he's going to make that statement again. But we never hear anybody saying, well, Joe Biden was guilty of misinformation or Tony Fauci was guilty. It's always the outgroups. And that gets back to what we were just talking about groupthink, is it's always the outgroups that are attacked, which means this is not really a fair and balanced policy. This is another weaponized tool. Well, Dr. Robert Malone, um, it's a pleasure to have you on the show again on this, you know, kind of, I guess, a bit of a different topic for a change than, than, your, than your expertise. But we're kind of in this position, aren't we, where we have to, you know, learn many things that are actually outside of our disciplines. 
Yeah, um, in, uh, fair enough. Uh, for me, I've been trying to follow the rabbit hole of how come we had all of these dysfunctional policies. Once I figured out that we could all see that the policies were wrong, they weren't really advancing the interests of public health, then the next question for anybody who has an inquisitive mind is why? And there's a lot of different, as you said in the lead-in, there's a lot of different theories, a lot of different actors, and um, I think that it's important to remember that the causes of what we've seen could well be multifactorial. It doesn't have to be some puppet master up here that's manipulating it for financial or power gain. It can be an emergent phenomena of many different interacting things. And I think groupthink, I'm pretty sure anybody that goes through the book and looks at those points is going to scratch their head and say, that sounds awfully familiar. Well, Dr. Robert Malone, it's such a pleasure to have you on again. My pleasure, Jan. Thank you all for joining Dr. Robert Malone and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kellek.